0: This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your hosts for today are Summit Racing's Al Noe and Jim Grosso with special guest Bill Bader Jr., president and owner of Summit Motorsports Park. Welcome to the On All Cylinders Podcast. Today we are joined by an outstanding American success story. Bill Bader Jr., the owner and operator of Summit Motorsports Park, an outstanding business partner for Summit Racing Equipment, it's been many years that we've had the relationship, and, and Bill, thank you again for joining us today. Really appreciate you being here. Thank
1: you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: How is everything going? It's off-season at the track. I know you're always working on it, though. Tell us about the plans going into uh, to this year and all the work in the off-season that goes into getting ready for the season.
1: Well, I just completed my 44th year working at Summit Motorsports Park. My father bought the track in in the spring of 74. I started working there at 10 years of age um, in the spring of 1977. So over the 44-year history, a lot has certainly changed. And what is most remarkable to me, I guess, is there used to be a very decided off-season in motorsports. And typically... It was so profound that it was like somebody flipped a switch and just turned the sport off in the wintertime and then flipped the switch in March or April and everybody came alive. Now, um, this is a 12-month business. We have 19 full-time people that work at Summit Motorsports Park all year round. And we actually had our first official planning meeting. So typically what happens in the life cycle of an event like the Summit Racing Equipment and HRA Nationals. It's the last week in June. The following Wednesday, all of our event notes are collected and the event notes are broken down into two parts, what we did well, and more importantly to me, what we did not do well. And so with that, the clock starts ticking because now we have 51 weeks to prepare for, in this case, the 16th annual Summit Racing Equipment and HRA Nationals. So you would think that, you know, our season, we run through the middle of October when we complete the Halloween Classic And I think, you know, my mom still asks me, what do you do all winter, Billy? What is there to do? Well, in the off season, we're working on the schedule. Typically, I have a draft of the upcoming year's schedule by June 1st. So we're working on dates. We're working on talent. We're working on budgets. We're working on sponsor renewals. We have a very large event each January, our annual Edelbrock Banquet of Champions that recognizes the achievements Mm -hmm. of of our uh, bracket racers that compete all season long. We come out of that and we're knee deep in event planning. All indications are we're gonna have a fabulous year. We have some new events we're excited about. We have some events that are just staples to what we do. And um, ticket sales are really strong. Sponsor renewals are really strong. We are feverishly working away to prepare for what I hope will be the best year in our history.
2: Two things real quick. I think Bill has the longest record for the intro. So good job, Bill. You set another milestone there. In I'm second, sorry, should
1: I have just said thank
2: you? No, not no, at all. We're that just was having, outstanding. We're just having fun, Bill. Second, okay. I don't know if I would consider that a banquet. You've been there, Al. It's that's, incredible. Like, that's like a red carpet event. I've never been to Hollywood, but I think that's a pretty good spin-off. You and your team mm-hmm. do an excellent job. It's really cool. Oh, thank you.
0: Bill, you, you mentioned how many years you've been at the track. Can you tell us when you were younger? all the things that you did that got you to where you are today. I'm sure you've probably done about every job there, right?
1: I have done uh, virtually every job there. So when I started uh, in 1977, and and I don't know in 1977 what my father's long-term vision was, but I can tell you that he methodically went about introducing me to every aspect of the business. And by every aspect, the obvious ones, right? Mowing, weed eating, picking up garbage, moving picnic tables. The less obvious ones were how to install fence, how to install pipe below the frost line, how to uh, hang guardrail, how to do electrical. That was the one thing I was never really good at. I felt I excelled in a lot of areas. Um, I'm generally pretty impatient. And so to take the time to turn a breaker off, to cut a wire, um, just seems like a wasted step to me. So I got knocked on my butt several times working with 110 and 220. So I learned the facility aspects. I learned about drainage. I learned how to install, you know, if you're going to install four-inch corrugated field tile, you do it a certain way. If you're going to install a French drain, if you're going to, uh, you know, I learned how to, I understood grade and how to shoot grade. I understood basic mechanical, though, again, I'm, I guess I'm not mechanically inclined. So I learned all of those aspects. And simultaneous to that, I was the event announcer. So at the ripe old age of 10 years old, I was announcing events. And I was a kid. I'm 10 years old. And I remember we were in the old Timing Tower, which was a 15 by 15 three-story building. We were on the third floor. The box office was the second floor. And the first floor was storage. No, the first floor was the pay window. So that was guest service. And I would be up there trembling with this microphone, and my father would say, talk. Can you say something? Say anything. For goodness sakes, just talk. And no pressure there, you know? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, it's amazing that I don't still need therapy from that. But I, I, I learned how to present events. I learned how to communicate to our crowd. I learned how to run a race. My father, back in the early days, we did not have a lot of, of money. So we learned how to multitask. The announcer was also the race director. The announcer was also responsible for marking the tech cards for a win or a loss. The announcer was also responsible for determining breakout before we had a true win computer. So if, Al, you dialed the 1350 and ran a 1348. And Jim, you dialed a 1420 and ran a 1422. You were in by two. Al, you were out by two. Jim, you're the winner. Al, you're the loser. You had to do all that in your head. Wow. We were the first track in the country to have a true win indicator. But prior to that, that's those were all the things the announcer did. So I learned how to multitask, right? And my degrees in accounting and corporate finance. So I always gravitated to numbers, I learned about the accounting. I learned about box office. I learned how to audit tickets and drop boxes. And, and then ultimately, I learned about sponsorship and how to sell sponsorship and, and how and the fulfillment. And I guess 45 years later, here I am. I can't do mass that quick. So I don't know how you...
0: Well, I, th- I think his dad put him in training, making there him do go. the slips. And Bill, I was going to ask you, when your dad had you do that, and we've been there, racers oh, yeah. are very passionate. You, oh, you yeah. get done with the round. You think you won. You go get the slip. You didn't. You being a 10-year-old kid, did your dad ever say, uh, hey, hey, Bill, come out here for a minute? These racers got a question on who won that oh, round, yeah. and then you had to get in the middle
1: of it. No, he, he shielded me from nothing. I was exposed to everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And I suppose at 10 years old, right, when you're the most, when you absorb the most, when you're the most pliable, mm. it prepared me exceedingly well for all the challenges that I would face down the road. But no, I, I um, never thought of him using me as a human shield, I guess. But I do remember as a very young man explaining to racers how they won or lost the race. And of course, back then, you would miss a deep stage and the starter would quick tree you or there were an exponential amount of ways to lose a race back in the 70s and 80s. And you would question the validity of the timing system. And we've come a long way from 1974,
2: for sure. They probably still question, you know, the computer's never wrong, or maybe the computer is or isn't. But when emotions (laughs) get into it, you'll question all of it. I know I would. Here's a fascinating thing.
1: So in the old days, you used floodlights for the timing Mm -hmm. points, right? These big, giant, what are those things, three or four inches across, and there were no reaction times. There were only breakouts, and you could only break out, I guess, by back then, what, to the hundredth? And today, you're talking about beams that are an eighth of an inch in diameter at each timing point. They're infrared. We have reaction times. We have, obviously, true wind computers. People are winning and losing races by one ten thousandth of a second, which is a fraction of a blink of an eye. Um, I think an eye blink is uh, a thousandth. It's either a hundredth or a, a thousandth. So divide that eye blink by 10, and that's the margin of victory in an abundant number of races that are recorded over the course of a year at Summit Motorsports Park. So what's happened is the cars have become so sophisticated that they are really rolling measuring sticks. And we don't get a lot of questions. Now, there are procedural questions about a guy who feels that his fellow racer didn't stage quick enough or when manipulate turning on the stage beam for 5 tenths of a second to activate auto start but i really don't have people coming to me anymore with an et slip saying i don't believe i lost this race because they're just as sophisticated as the timing system is now so a guy can tell you boy i missed the tree i blinked i got distracted whatever there really aren't that many questions anymore thank goodness and and we've just evolved to that, I think.
2: So you have no 10 year olds on your staff, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I I, I, um, I, may now, though, now that I've looked at that through a different lens, but no, we don't. We <laughs> we, um, we, hire adults for the most part. That's awesome.
2: Boy, it's, it's yeah. great, you know, going from what you did as a 10 year old to what the computer does now. And, and obviously, mm-hmm. there's no doubt. Uh, when measurables down to that, that point, right. That's incredible. It really is.
0: Uh, Bill, I want to tell you a story about the first time I was at your track and it was a, it was a long time ago. I want to say it was either 87 or 88. I think it was 88 and there was an NMCA event and I had never been to an NMCA event. We saw it was close in Ohio. I grew up in Cincinnati. Edgewater was my home track. So I was always at Edgewater, you know, every every chance I could get. And the opportunity came up to go to this place we've heard of, Norwalk. People said, you got to go to Norwalk. You know, that was back before it was officially Summit Motorsports Park. And we, we made a road trip. We got to your track and we were blown away. The cleanliness of it, the organization, how the event ran. It was just amazing. Thinking back to even back then, that many years ago, just walking onto the premise and looking around. The number one shock thing, Bill, and I know you take a lot of pride in this, you had incredibly clean bathrooms, like better than restaurants I've been into. You had good food, friendly
2: people. We we left
0: and we're like, what is this place?
2: Absolutely. I spent a lot of time on both sides, uh, the racer side, as well as uh, the spectator side. Bill, I was back there in a I used to go to the World Nationals every year. I was exposed probably yeah. to uh, NRP back in the day in probably 84. Um, and uh, the facility was just awesome.
1: Well, thank you, Jim. And, you know, we established very early a set of core competencies, things that were uh, objectives uh, of ours. And we've grown. We've grown in, we then, uh, 1974, we sat eight, 800 people. We now see 30,000 people. Um, we were a 100-acre facility. Now we're in excess of 300-acre facility. Events have come and gone. Events have grown. We were the proud host of the IHRA World Nationals for 24, 24 years. Um, and I was very proud of that event. We worked exceedingly hard on that event and growing it. And, and then we had the opportunity to become part of the NHRA family and did so beginning in 2007 concurrently with our naming rights. But through the years, we have always embraced those core competencies, and they have been a guiding light for us. They provide clarity for us, and you can't lose your way if you stay true to who you are. How do companies that are 100 years old all of a sudden go away? What happens? I I ask myself that all the time. I'm a student of business. Uh, I study success. I study failure. And I think it's because businesses lose sight of who they are and what got them there. And that's something I hold on to pretty ardently. And that is our core competencies, be true to who you are. And they're hidden in plain sight at Summit Motorsports Park, really. I mean, we don't try to conceal them, but they have served us incredibly well.
0: None of this comes by accident and none of it comes easy. It's a ton of hard work from you and your team. Let's talk about, for example, the Summit Nationals weekend. Describe how that week leading up to it looks and how how your time is spent during the event, because I know you've got so much going on and so many people to to help take care of and direct. Tell us about all that work, all that prep. What does that look like for the few days and then the day of the event?
1: Those are, (laughs) they are fun, but stressful weeks. So let's say we're 14 days out from the event. We, We are now in week 48 or 49 of our planning cycle. Typically, I like to have the playbook done 21 to 28 days before the event for the Summit Racing Equipment and HRA Nationals. It's about an 80 page event planner that details every aspect of the event. It may detail when the ushers arrive, it may detail when the Summit Customer Appreciation Dinner is going to serve dinner. It's everything. That book is a comprehensive working document of every aspect of that event. And we've been putting those together in such deep detail because, God forbid, going into the week of the event, let's say one of us gets sick or one of us, God forbid, isn't alive for the event. The show goes on, and the management team needs to understand what obligations are to be met for our guests, the race teams, the sponsors. So by 14 days, we are fully immersed now. All the details are done, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. I'm looking at the weather. I'm looking at what to expect. We've got campgrounds to prepare. We sell over a thousand campsites for the Summit Racing Equipment and HRA Nationals. So there's health department compliance, there's striping, there's numbering. We've got to make sure we're now executing the 14 day out front checklist items. And those are actually some of my most. I don't get anxious about events. I get, I'm very high strung. I'm pretty passionate. I do not accept excuses or failure. I don't want to hear how it can't be done. So we move mountains. We find a way or make a way or get out of our way. And that is oftentimes not delivered diplomatically. I am not a, I'm pretty uh, intense. I push. I don't ask anything of anybody that I'm not doing myself. So I'm actually kind of relieved when Sunday week of arrives, everything's done, everything's ready, and now we just need to roll out the red carpet to welcome 600 race teams and 50,000 plus guests and suite holders and sponsors and media. Um, So now we just execute. In a normal year, my goal is to have nothing to do so I'm available to to go to a fire. So I don't schedule myself in a position. We have an incredibly committed, dedicated, hardworking management team. We employ in a normal year about 430 event staff and we power, we empower and enable at every level. So that's a touch point. I, I, everyone that wears a Summit Motorsports Park uniform is a touch point to our guest. And that first touch point is who the 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 Highway Patrol that waves them off of eighteen. Then the next touch point is the Parker. The next touch point are your gate staff, and then you just encounter these touch points throughout your day at Summit Motorsports Park. I am one person of over four hundred that are working that event, so I want to empower and enable at every level, which means I want every person in uniform to have the full authority to do whatever it takes to ensure that the guest experience meets or exceeds expectation. That's the culture. So that week is uh, pretty hairy, pretty wild. If the, if the seven-day forecast looks beautiful, we can kind of breathe easy. If there's a threat of rain, you know that takes us a different course. But um, I can tell you this past year was a little different because we were short-staffed. It's no secret. The world is short staffed right now. So I covered, I, I worked in the parking lots. I basically went to wherever the hottest fire was to assist. And Friday night, we actually had a seat plank break. And if you remember back to last year, we weren't even sure we were going to get to race on Friday. And God parted the, the skies, and we got a pretty great evening of, of professional racing in, and a, a seat plank broke. So Uh, we were short staffed. So I actually sat next to that broken wood plank, caution taped it off, put some cones, and then waited till the evening was over. Then I assisted our facility team in replacing that particular seat plank. So we're out and about, we're active, we're hands-on. I could never, ever, 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 ever imagine not being at Summit Motorsports Park during an event. I am a very hands-on guy. There are several members of the management team that would be thrilled if I weren't on property for an event, but it's it's a member of the family. It's not a job. It's not a career. It's not a lifestyle. It's life. And I'm sure if you have a psychologist listening right now, they're going to say, I have some real unhealthy views of business, but it's, it's who we are. It's it's what the Bader family is. and. I'm damn proud of that.
2: You know, I got to share a quick story. It may have been back in the mid-90s where uh, we were racing at the World Nationals, and I was in the back 40. I mean, the place was packed, and it had rained. And who's out there at 4 o'clock in the morning dumping gravel? So we had a good, clean pit. Bill, Mm -hmm. the backhoe, the roller. I mean, it was you. You were out there doing it. Your dad was out there. And uh, that certainly validates you are committed regardless of what the task is to just get it done and move on.
1: We, you have to do that because my dad always said our problems are not our guest problems. They don't care for short staff. They don't care that we don't have pavement in the parking lots. They expect to come in and be entertained. And it's, it's kind of like the Clark W. Griswold uh, when they travel across country to Wally World and they get there and the park's closed from their side of the desk, they're all excited to be there. They don't want to be drowned in our sorrows of all the challenges we face. And that was one of the biggest lessons I had to learn as a young executive, I guess, that's what I am. With me, what you see is what you get. And um, my game face is very telling. My dad said, listen, you need to calm down. And that's ironic because he was anything but calm. But as he got older, he said, listen, they don't care. And you need to put that smile on and be the duck on the pond. I'm getting better at that. <laughs> I haven't perfected it, but I work on it every day.
0: Was there ever a time in your history that you were, um, you know, working at the track, moving moving along, moving ahead, and you thought, I am not sure I want to run this track, and I'm not sure I want to do this? Or did you always have a super clear direction where you said, no, I, I am going to do this?
1: No, I, I was a very, I am very restless I went to college as a political science major. I wanted to get my law degree and I wanted to be president. That was my goal. I wanted to be president of the United States. And my senior year in high school, I ran for city council. Um, I love politics. I love the political landscape. I don't know that I have thick enough skin to survive it, but I care and I'm genuine and I'm transparent. So I either wanted to be president of the United States or I wanted to be a trial attorney not representing the bad guys. I wanted to represent good people, and I wanted to dismember the bad guys on the stand. That was my passion. And I ended up leaving school. I dropped out. I worked at the track when I was 10 years old, and I worked with real-life situations. I mean, in real time. So now I'm sitting in a classroom listening to some professor that if he were so brilliant, he would have been in business, not teaching about business, right? So I I thought, this is boring. This is uninspiring. So I left school. My father fired me from the racetrack and uh, he was so angry. So I journeyed for a a year or so selling TVs for Curtis Mathis and pumping gas at night, and closing a gas station. and, And then I went to work in a management training program. I went back to school for one semester, got straight A's, just approved everybody I could do it. And then I quit a second time. And uh, then I finally decided to go back a third time and complete a double major in accounting and corporate finance. At that point, I made the commitment to the racetrack. And I graduated from high school in 86. I graduated from college in 91. With my double major, and and I committed 100% to the racetrack at that point.
0: That's a great story, Bill. It's the uh, sometimes you have to take a couple of turns in order to get from A to B,
1: right? It's okay to take the turns. I think we get pigeonholed into this map of life that we're supposed to go through, and it's scary to journey off course. And it shouldn't be scary. It should be adventurous and i'm going to tell you what i am i have survived the great recession i've survived the pandemic and my life prepared me for that and so i don't i'm not embarrassed to say i dropped out of college twice i'm proud to say that i graduated but i learned things along the way i learned you know my father fired me i learned how to deal with a uh, an angry dad i learned how to develop humility for pumping gas and I don't know that there's much about my life I would change, truthfully. And um, I guess that's something to be proud of, too. So, Bill, um, do you have any
0: memories that are things that when you think back to the years at the track where you think, I cannot believe that happened?
1: I do. I, In preparation for this, I started to think about uh, and became flooded with things that from 1977 to the present, the, the big overwhelming thing was the people all of the stories, all of the interactions, we have a half a million people that visit Summit Motorsports Park each year. And I will tell you that I feel like every year I come in contact with 100,000 of them, whether it's making eye contact and saying hello or welcome or thank you, whether it's a hug or a handshake or a kiss on the cheek or whatever. Those people, those memories, those smiles, that to me is the most rewarding part of what we do I think, you know, I, I probably, boy, specific memories. There are some things I probably shouldn't talk about, which I won't. Um, probably one of my craziest memories was the first year that John Force came to um, Summit Motorsports Park. He actually agreed to be in a casket. And we put the casket in the back of a motorized funeral coach. And Dean Scusa was in a tuxedo sitting on top sitting on the buckboard, I guess, of this motorized funeral coach. And we kept hearing this thud. Well, it was John John had a wireless microphone inside the casket, and he kept hitting his head on the top of the casket as Dean would move, start and stop, start and stop. The casket would shift and John would hit his head. And so that was a pretty crazy moment when the pallbearers opened up the doors brought out the casket, and John hopped out of the casket. That that was kind of a cool moment. John has since told me he will never do anything like that again. <laughs> um, one year, Omar Vizquel was an unadvertised special guest, and, and Omar Vizquel was a very special player for the Cleveland Indians. He was a shortstop yeah. during the high of the Indians' career with Albert Bell and Jim Tomey and Manny Ramirez and that generation of the Indians. And um, he was so excited to be at the racetrack. He popped out of a funny car during pre-race and he was signing everything, anything that he could sign, he would sign. He was excited. Um, Fans were excited to see him. That was a cool moment. John broke, John was doing, John in the old days, people remember funny cars, they would actually do burnouts to the eighth mile. And John did a burnout to the eighth mile and he couldn't put his funny car in reverse. And he actually broke a carbon fiber reverser handle, trying to get that handle to put his funny car in reverse. So he banged a U-turn at the eighth mile, drove up the outside of the lane. I don't remember who he was racing then. Got to the water box, banged another U-turn, staged his car and raced. It was uh, pretty incredible. Um, There are so many crazy memories. I remember at one of the first high school nationals, I was working in tech. And this kid was so, ex- my dad had a rule you never criticize a person's car. That is their child, that is their life's work. And no matter how beautiful or ugly, mechanically sound or unsound, you have to treat that delicately. And there was this kid, he had driven from Michigan and he wanted to race at the high school nationals. And I opened the door. And I swear to God, this thing looked like the inside of the Flintstone Mobile. There was no floor in this car, front or back. And and oh he had a two-by-four that was C-clamped to each threshold w- where the door closes. And oh he drove from Michigan with his feet resting on this two-by-four to race at the high school nationals. <laughs> I, I, I I That was a memorable moment. Obviously... I think I ended up giving him a vehicle to race because we could not let him race that vehicle. My personal vehicle raced many times at the high school nationals because the car that the high schooler arrived with was not raceworthy and so I've had people from rental car companies call me and ask me if a rental car raced at the track and I would I always try to protect our guest in that incident. But here's, here's something I want to remind everybody. If you're going to race a rental car at a racetrack, take the ET slips out of it when you return it to the car rental place, good please.
2: Good advice.
1: Yeah, it's really good advice. And it's amazing how many people don't. So, you know, those are just some things that popped into my head. But I have 44 years of experience and memories and the inaugural Summit Racing Equipment NHRA Nationals. One of my proudest moments of my entire career was sharing that experience with my dad, because when my father bought the track in 1974, he met with the National Hot Rod Association. Uh, Bob Daniels, who was the division director back then, met with him at a Holiday Inn. And my father wanted an NHRA national event in the worst way. And Bob Daniels looked at my dad and said, you will never have an NHRA national event ever. And that was because of National Trail Raceway in Columbus. So my father went to IHRA, and we were an IHRA facility, I think, for 24 years. We hosted the IHRA World Nationals. We always struggled to get people to buy tickets on Sunday of the IHRA World Nationals. Saturday was a sellout. Sunday was always a struggle to sell tickets. So at the inaugural Summit Racing Equipment and HRA Nationals, on Sunday... During pre race, I looked. I, I wanted that event. I, I, I never cared, uh, or never the profitability of the national event. I never did a pro forma. It was just something my dad always wanted that, and he was told he would never get it. And um, I was able to deliver that, and that was a. Um, I looked at my dad. The anthem ended. The first pair of cars lit. I looked at my dad. I gave him a kiss. I gave him a hug, and and uh, it was a really cool moment. And. Um, I said to him in his ear, I said, we'll never have to worry about selling tickets to Sunday of this race. So, yeah, all kinds of moments. That, that's probably uh, in the top two or three.
2: I can't top
0: that. Me either. Yes, what a is. great memory. That is pretty incredible. Bill, have you ever met anyone that, uh, and you've met a lot of people over the years, I'm sure, a lot of incredible racers, and I know you've developed friendships with many of them. Is there anybody that stands out that you've met
1: that you think, I cannot believe I am meeting this person? tell you a story. Debbie and I, this was, God, this would have been in the 90s. This would have been before my father. My father bought IHRA in 1997. So this was probably in the mid-90s. And it was Saturday morning of the night under fire. And we went to the gate to open the gate. And this was on the Budweiser side. There used to be a highway gate. And then there was an interior gate where racers would pull up to and wait to be credentialed so they could get inside the park to get parked. And there was a grandfather and a little boy who had their hands on the fence, and they were peering through the fence. And Debbie and I approached them, and they were all excited and just couldn't wait for the day to start. We found out in the course of conversation that grandfather was in the advanced stages of cancer and didn't really know how much longer he would be around. But for that day, He and his grandson were going to enjoy racing at my racetrack. And those are the extraordinary people the Don Garlitzes, wonderful guy, the John Forces, the Greg Andersons, all wonderful people, but they're not why I get out of bed every day. And whenever I'm having a really bad day, I think about that grandfather, and that's why we do what we do, you know? So I've been blessed to meet in 44 years hundreds of thousands of people that I have come in contact with. I cherish all of them. I'm sure I've made a few enemies with some decisions I had to make. But I I would say that 99.99% of those are friends. And I'm a better person for having had all those experiences. And hopefully, they enjoyed their day of racing at uh, Summit Motorsports Park. Those are the things that get me out of bed every day. Bill, is there anything
0: at the pro or sportsman level if you could change one or even more things in racing today? Is there anything <laughs> that you would, yeah, we might be here that's another like, hour. That's <laughs> <what we're
1: doing>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bill, you don't have to answer that. Any one of these you could say,
0: yeah, I'm not going to go there, you know?
1: No, I, listen, I, I'm not afraid of any topic. I, having been involved in this sport and watching it evolve, um, the overwhelming feeling that I have, truthfully, is our sport has so much potential. And one of my personal missions was that before I died, I wanted drag racing to achieve its rightful place um, with the NFL and with the NBA and with Major League Baseball. Our sport has the potential to do that, but we underperform and we need to do better in all aspects of what we do. Our creature comfort features meaning our facilities need to be state-of-the-art. They need to have flush bathrooms. We need to have Wi-Fi. We need to have access. We need to park on pavement. We need better lighting in our parking lots. And this is for some at Motorsports Park too. I'm not, I'm not going to cast a stone um, because we have plenty of areas we can improve. We need to recognize we're in the entertainment business. We're not in the business of sending cars from a standing start 1,000 feet or 1,320 feet. That's not what we do. Um, I think NHRA principally based, um, I think Wally's vision was the cars were the stars. I disagree with that. I think the people driving the cars are the stars. People relate to people and stories resonate with people. And we need to do a better job of creating stars, creating stories, connecting guests with racers, getting guests to care we go 330 miles an hour. Um, We don't need to go 340 or 350. We're already going 330 miles an hour. What are we doing off track? How are we marketing? Are we fan friendly? Are we mom friendly? 48% of the kids born in this country are born to a single parent. Are we welcoming to moms and their kids? Drag racing, I think, is still uh, an underperforming sport. And we've got so much potential and so much upside in a nutshell, we just need to do better. Across this great country of ours, we just need to do better. We need to be better. And because the sky's the limit for what we do every day. That was the short version. The long version, you would have to say, Bill, quit
2: talking. So, <laughs> I was getting um, prepared, but that's okay.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm. I'm watching yeah, the cool. clock and I, and I want to be sensitive, but we've got a lot of potential. We just need to be better.
2: You know what? With the huge growth in in no prep and seeing how fast the small tire and radio cars are now, where do you see this going? I mean, it's definitely come to the top. There's a lot of it out there. Nationally, uh, there's a lot going on. Where do you see this going?
1: I, I think it has a lot of potential. I think it has a lot of upside. I think it's exciting. I think if you're a fan, when you're sitting in the stands and you're watching Super Comp, Super Gas, Super Street, or you're listening to an announcer talking about reaction time and you're watching these cars come off the line and then stall and then two point however many seconds they come back alive, and that we talk about breakout and we talk about margin of victory, the complexity that surrounds our sport and the ability to convey that to fans in the stands, there's a disconnect there. And I think what you're talking about with small tire, and I don't know that we want to call it outlaw, but but the small tire movement, what I love most about it is guess what? First one to the finish line wins, right? That makes sense to people. You're not going to use a downtrack throttle stop. You're not going to use a sputter box. You're not concerned about a crossover or a bump down or multiple bump downs. The complexities of bracket racing will always limit it's mainstream. It, it, uh, the ability to consume sportsman racing will be limited by virtue of the complexity and the barriers that it presents. Small tire racing, heads up racing, it's easy. First one to the finish line sure. wins. The, the challenge is the expense associated with that. Bracket racing is affordable. You don't need to have invested $50,000 or 40000 or 30000 in a race car. So I guess it's it's like... Okay. Some people want a bracket race. Some people want a big money race. Some people want a small tire race. I think it's, it's, a, it's a flavor in the ice cream chest that has lots of potential. I think it needs to probably have, probably needs some organization. It needs some structure. It needs some very decided marketing strategy associated with it. How are we going to take this to market? Do you take it to TV? Do you take it to the World Wide Web? It, it, there there's so much potential for all of this stuff and we're all busy with our day-to-day stuff that we don't get to dream as often as as we would like but it's very consumable it's very exciting it resonates with people but you're taking the product to facilities that how fan friendly are they you know how the announcer is what is the announcer saying about the car is he building stars is he creating brands or is he talking about cubic inches There was a day where Ford, Chevy, and Chrysler had a very active rivalry between the three. And I don't know that that's, I don't know how relevant that is anymore. So I would tell you that I could host the greatest show on earth, but if my facility doesn't meet expectation and the experience doesn't meet expectation, it won't be the greatest show on earth in year two or year three. It'll be a dead show. Probably what needs to happen is there needs to be a group of racers from each discipline. There needs to be some tracks, and we all need to talk about collectively how we're going to become the last great undiscovered American-made sport.
0: So, Bill, as we, uh, we want to be respectful of your time, but I do have one more question. What is
1: next for Summit Motorsports Park? We, we have a lot of facility upgrades that we need to make. We need more bathrooms and showers. We, we need better lighting in our parking lots. We need to be a facility that provides internet service Um, wherever you are on property. I think we need to continue to invest in those creature comfort features. Where do you change a child's diaper at a racetrack? Changing stations, um, areas to get in from the sun to cool off on event day, more video screens. Events will always be be there. I know I'm looking at conducting uh, maybe some type of a rodeo event. I mean, we can do concerts, we could do football games on the racetrack, we could put a ring and do a WWE event, we have 30,000 seats and all the parking in the world. So there's all that stuff. um, And I'm looking at all of it. But there's a hefty investment coming. We have spent since November 1st of 2006, we've spent $11.8 million on our facility. That's a lot. But I will tell you that we just we have a lot of work to do on the facility side to enhance the guest experience. So that's really where I'm looking. Now, that will not all be done by next year, but we need to start talking about it, communicating it and making the financial plans to invest, invest, invest. You know, the if you build it, they will come because certainly they will come for sure.
0: Awesome. Well, Bill, thank
1: you so much for joining
0: Gemini today. Yep. Thanks, Bill. It's always a pleasure. And uh, we are looking forward to an awesome year. Absolutely. Thank you. Love you guys. Always great seeing you. See you at the track. You too. This has been the On All Cylinders podcast.
2: Powered by Summit Racing.
0: Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com.
2: onallcylinders.com.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time.